0: All right, Uh, Genesis 38, we're going to read tonight. Um, Everybody got that? Genesis 38. I want to warn you before we read this, it is rated NC-17. Remember that? NC-17, it's worse than R. Everybody ready? Are you okay with that? Uh, It is in the Bible, and we won't make light of it, but it is quite uh, involved. So let's hear the word of the Lord. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her and she conceived and bore a son and she called his name Onan. Or excuse me, he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chazeb when she bore him and Judah took a wife for Ur his firstborn and her name was Tamar but Ur Judah's firstborn was wicked in the sight of the Lord and the Lord put him to death then Judah said to Onan go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother but Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground, so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, "'Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah my son grows up.' "'For he feared that he would die like his brothers.' "'So Tamar went and remained in her father's house.' In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shuah's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend, Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage." When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, "'Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand.' So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went her way. Taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take the pledge back from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, "'Where is the cult prostitute who was at Anaim by the roadside?' And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, for we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. God's Word. Okay so there's a lot here (laughs) to deal with first of all i want you to think about it this way this is the story that moses chooses to interrupt joseph's story with we got to think about why that might be okay Uh, at home when you were a kid did you ever have a wall at your house maybe you have one now that had all the family portraits on it ever have that wall uh, we had that wall when I was a kid. It was the hallway between my brother and I's room. The whole wall, both sides actually, were filled with various portraits of the family members uh, from the time we were babies all the way up. Uh, it, was, it was fun to walk by the hallway and see kind of what we looked like when we were so small, you know, how, how tiny we were compared to what we had become. Uh, even better, my grandmother, my mom's mom, had many little, I don't even know how many she had, photo albums, and they went back even further than what I could ever remember. They went back into black and white and maybe even the earliest times when they had photographs. And she would tell me every time we went through the the, the pictures, this is so-and-so, that's so-and-so, here's your uncle, here's your aunt, here's what they did, here's what they didn't do. And, you know, the Bible is kind of like that. It's kind of like a wall for the church forever to show who our family members are and what they did. Except for this difference. Um, usually things like this don't make the wall. (laughs) Usually Meemaw didn't go into this kind of detail about Uncle, you know, LJ or whatever, you know. This is TMI, too much information, we think. And yet, if the point being made is not look at these people and look how great they are, But if rather the point being made is what we see at the end of this chapter, that God, even through the mess, is going to send a breakthrough, which is what the name Perez means, breakthrough, then you kind of understand why stories like this make the wall. Even somebody as uh, illustrious as John Calvin noted this, he says about this passage, writing 500 years ago, he says, the Redeemer... Derived his origin from this family. Jesus derived his origin from these people. That we may not be offended at the stains with which his ancestry was defiled. Let us know that by his infinite purity, they were all cleansed. Just as the sun, by absorbing whatever impurities are in the earth and air, purges the world. In other words, the stories of the people of God, this is so important for our day because you hear so so many people, and maybe many of us think this, I like Jesus, but I don't like his people. Have you ever heard that? I like Jesus, but the church, meh. Those people are hypocrites. Those people are terrible. Well, listen to this. It's not God's people that stain God. It's God that purifies his people. By the connection. Our connection to God as sinners, corrupt people, does not stain Jesus. Jesus purifies the stain, it goes the other way. Now of course he took our impurities, he took our stains, but he did so so that he might die for them so that his purity might be communicated to us. And so Judah, Tamar, all the rest of them, Onan, Ur, this is a crazy mess of corruption in this family. And yet God is showing us through the corruption about how his grace works. So that's what we're going to talk about. Just two simple things. You can see it in the bulletin. First of all, we're going to see the human corruption in the family. Talk about that a little bit, as uncomfortable as the corruption is. And then we're going to talk about God's grace at work within this family. We'll learn some things about us as well. First of all, the corruption in the family. What exactly is going on in this family? Why does Moses interrupt Joseph's story to tell us about Judah? Well, there's two reasons for that. Uh, One, Judah actually um, ends up being a star of the story by the end. And I'll give you a little spoiler alert. By the end of the book of Genesis, Judah is the one among all the brothers who will stand up for Benjamin and his father Jacob and do what is right. Right? So, what you're kind of starting to see in this story is, is the process in which God took Judah, the corrupt man, and humbled him to become the honorable man that he would later become. That's one reason. Another reason is this Judah becomes a major player in the whole Bible, as out of Judah's family comes David. And guess who? Jesus Christ. In particular, this story is mentioned in both David's genealogy and in the genealogies of Jesus, both in Matthew and Luke. It specifically mentions the thing about Judah and Tamar. That's why Moses wants to pause it here. He recognizes, even at at this early stage of his point in Revelation, that Judah was an important figure and was going to end up being even more important. Therefore, we've got to stop and talk about the corruption that Judah once had that God would, by grace, fix. Now, the corruption that he has and the corruption that his whole family has is really a corruption of sin. That's obvious to say, that sin is at the heart of the corruption. But maybe we need to stop there and just take account of that. Uh, there was a psychiatrist named Carl Meniger. Have you ever heard of him? American psychiatrist uh, actually he was one of the pioneers of psychiatry in the United States wrote many books was a was a professor at some university I think in the Midwest and in 1989 at the end of his life he wrote a book Whatever Happened to Sin that was the name of it Whatever Happened to Sin and this man was not a Christian he didn't not to my knowledge didn't claim to be one and yet he was observing that in all of his time of psychiatry that uh, people would come in with problems, and, and they were usually problems of some type of corruption or perversion of life of some sort, the ways that their lives had gone haywire. And in the psychiatrist's office, as they sat on the couch, they would be able to go to family of origin and talk about that. They would be able to go to the things that had happened to them and talk about that. They would be able to go to ways that they had been victimized and talk about that. They, they were able to talk about many different topics, mental illness physiological problems, all of which are valid, actually. All of those things are very valid. And yet, he was saying at the end of his life, they were missing something because they had stopped using as a category sin and evil. For Carl Minninger, sin was a necessary part of the diagnostic when it came to human beings. Sin being defined in his mind as a violation of a moral standard bigger than the person. We know as Christians it's even defined greater than that. It's a violation of God's character. A moral standard that gets its transcendence from the God who is transcendent, the God who gave that moral character to human beings, wrote it on their heart, and gave it to them both in tablets of stone and in Christ through the Holy Spirit written on the heart. Sin matters. Sin matters the way we think about it, the way we diagnose ourselves has to at some point come down to how do I I relate to my maker. If all I can talk about is the horizontal, I'm never going to fully understand me. As helpful as the horizontal is, and I've benefited myself from thinking about the horizontal, there's a lot of stuff there. But there is something that is inescapable about the vertical. And we see this playing out in the story right from verse 1. Look at verse 1 a telling observation about Judah and how all this came about. What does it say in verse 1? Somebody read it. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hiram. There you go. Look at that. Two things. It came to pass, or it so happened, that Judah went down from his brothers... And turned aside to a certain Adulamite, Hira. You say, so what? What do you think? What's wrong with that? What's at play here? This turning from his brothers towards an Adulamite, Was it Dulemite, a, heathen nation? a heathen nation. Yeah, Adulamites were among the Canaanites, the, the various native nations. That were in the land of Canaan, and they were all heathen, or, or for lack of a better word, they, they were pagans. They, they worshipped many gods, and, and they lived by human morality, or maybe better, immorality. Judah turns away from his family, by the way, the family where God had given the promises, the covenants, the laws, the sacrifices, etc., and he turned towards Consorting with a family that worshiped other gods and lived by the light of their own imaginations. That turning aside is not just that he turned aside one time and had a conversation, and it's not just that he was friendly and had a friendship with Hira. I don't think the Bible would have frowned upon him just having a cordial relationship. Turning aside means he went and lived with them and adopted their ways, at least to some degree. He was trying to escape the boundaries of his family to go and live his own way. This this is big. For Judah to do this, for him to leave his family, is is more than just for you and I to do so. Remember, his family at this time was the church. It was it. That was the people of God, right, at that time. That was all there was that, that that had been revealed to them the true way of worshiping and following God. Just that group. And he left that group willingly so that he could go to this other group. Now, let's think about it. Why did he do that, do you think? Why do we do that? Why do people today do that very thing? Grass is greener. greener. Tired of the rules? rules? When I get out of my parents' house, I'll tell you what, I'm going to have a great time. It's a story we hear. It's a story we see all the time, right? When I'm with my parents, you know, and they're talking about Yahweh and God, man, it makes me feel so bad, so guilty, so you know. When I'm hanging out with the Adulamites, man, it's party after party, and we're just feeling it out, and it's great. He even marries somebody from that background. It says he marries uh, the daughter of a certain Shua, who was also a Canaanite. He begins to have children with her. Ur, and then Onan, and then Sheila. Notice, who is it that names the children? He names the first one, and then what happens? She names the second one. She names the third one. Now, the point here is not that the man should name and not the woman. That's not the point. But the point is, he's giving more ground to a pagan way of life. The pagan, the one who doesn't even know God, is naming his children. The children of the guy who has received the promises of God for the salvation of the world is letting someone who doesn't even know God name his own kids and raise his own kids. I don't know. It's a good question. They're probably, they're not Hebrew in origin, so they're some type of Canaanite type word, and I'm not sure. I don't know. I'm not up on my Canaanite. And I don't have any footnotes to help me here, so... We don't know what they were. Uh, Bob, Bob? okay, okay. (laughs) Wow, okay. Bob, it's getting rougher and rougher every week. It it really is. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) And it gets worse, doesn't it? Not for Bob, but for (laughs) Earth. For Judah, it gets worse. What happens next? He finds a wife, and and all indications are again, he finds this wife from the Canaanites again. And Tamar marries Ur. Then what happens? God kills Ur. Now, the word used there, this is not, okay, this is not just a case of someone who dies young. The Bible does not teach that those who die young are displeasing to God and those who live old are pleasing to God. That's not part of the teaching of the Bible, it's not that simple. But there are a few occasions where it says something like this, they were evil in the eyes of the Lord and so God killed them. The flood, he says that, right? Can you think of another occasion? Aaron's sons, they were evil in the eyes of the Lord, God struck them dead. Um, we're only to think this is the case when God tells us it's the case because it's too much to speculate why someone dies young. You can't go into that. that that's, beyond, that's above our pay grade. But when the Lord God says, hey, this is why I killed him, like he does from time to time in the Bible, that's important. And if we're going to judge by the flood, and if we're going to judge by another place that's used, by the way, of Sodom and Gomorrah, the same phrase is used. If we're gonna judge by that, er must have been a bad dude, like really, really bad. It seems like you know, maybe he only had gotten past the betrothal stage, maybe he had gotten fully married, but just so, nevertheless, they had not been able to conceive a child yet by the time he was put to death. And so Judah did something that was customary during the, in the ancient Near Eastern culture. The Bible does talk about this later in Deuteronomy, Uh, I would say it's never said as if this is God's ideal for people, but it is regulated by Moses' law. And here's the custom. When a brother is married to a woman and the brother dies, especially if it's the older brother, and the brother dies before he's able to bear a child with her, it's the duty of somebody else in the family to marry that woman and to raise up children in the name of the older brother. That was an ancient Near Eastern custom, not just in Israel, but in everywhere. And uh, clearly they thought differently about marriage, children, and all that than we do because that does sounds weird to us and probably rightfully so, but to them it didn't sound weird because in their minds marriage, especially among, for the oldest son, was really about inheritance. It was about passing on the family line. And if the older brother dies before he can do that, then somebody's got to step up. The book of Ruth actually has a great example of this, a beautiful example, which the women are studying this week. Uh, where this whole idea of a kinsman redeemer is this very idea. Somebody in the family would need to step up to bear children for uh, the family, you know, if, if the older brother is unable to do it. Um, and in this case, Judah basically just gives the instruction, Onan, go do it. That's what you're supposed to do. You don't need to find another woman. Marry this woman. He does. And then Onan does something that is also wicked in the eyes of God. One writer puts it this way. Onan shows... An attitude of gratification without responsibility. An attitude of gratification without responsibility. He's done what his father told him to do. He's done what the culture at his time thought was respectable. And he went through the motions. You know what I'm saying. But he did not go all the way through the motions because... He did not want actually to bear the responsibility that he was being called to. Now, there's a lot we could say here if we wanted to stop and talk about reproduction and about God's view of those things. I think there's a lot of implications in this story for that. Uh, Let me just say one thing Sex is not a sport. In the Bible, it does not present it as a sport for kicks. It's presented as something that is good and pleasurable within marriage, but it's something that always carries with it responsibilities. And you can't really separate the responsibilities from the pleasure and get away with it. That's all I'll say about that. We we could go into a whole thing if you wanted, maybe some other time. Onan did not want the responsibilities. Have you ever heard about that? Do we have that problem today? People treating sex and other things as if it were about gratification divorced from responsibility. Yeah. I would say that's kind of won the day, actually. That that is most people's view of what sexuality is about. Uh, The church fathers used to call it Onanism after Onan. Onanism was the idea that you just used it For pleasure, for kicks, for sport, but not willing to take the responsibilities that God himself lays upon a person when that person marries another. There are responsibilities. Onan doesn't want it, and so God, it says, put him to death. Once again, we're told God's killing of him at a young age was a judicial punishment. What does Judah do next? This gets even worse. More corrupt. I mean, what should Judah have done at this point? Let's just stop there and think, talk about it. What should Judah have done? Okay, try again. Sheila? Maybe. What else? Maybe. Find another husband? Yeah, okay, let's start there, right? I, mean, I think all those things are good, but let's start there. God, okay, wow, you've killed two of my sons, and I think there's probably a reason to believe Judah was not in the dark as to why, okay? It wasn't just, oh man, a tragedy. This was, he knew, there was no, it was probably, however they died, he knew, it was like Ananias and Sapphira, God struck them, and he would have known it, and yet there's no mention here of Judah saying, Lord, I've, I've strayed. I left my father's house and I have went off to all this foolishness and look at what it's, it's brought to my life I'm so sorry how can I correct it we don't see that at all we don't see Judah thinking about his own sin and we don't see him trying to find a solution for Tamar which could have been all the ones y'all mentioned it could also have been hey Tamar it's just clearly not going to work with my family you are released from the bond here and you can go and find another life, which could have been done, but he chose not to do that. What did he do? Center home. Center home, but not just home free. Center home with the obligation that he would preserve his youngest son for her with actually no intention of doing that. Isn't that what the text says? He sent her to her house, he, she, he said, just save yourself because my son Sheila will be yours and I'll make all this right. And it says in the back of his mind, he was never going to give Sheila to her because he was afraid that he might die too, which shows that Judah, instead of looking inwardly when this stuff was happening and saying, what did I do wrong, what did he do? He blamed Tamar. It's like he was thinking, you know, Tamar, woo, you got a bad track record, men die. Quickly, after they're married to you, I'm not giving you another son. And actually, I'm going to try to save other men from you by keeping you bound up in this contract with me and my family. And the fact is, it had nothing to do with Tamar. The story will show Tamar, while not perfect by any means, Tamar, as Judah will later confess, was more righteous than Judah. And yet she got blamed for it. And she got trapped in this, well, dead end. In the laws of that time, uh, a betrothal to marriage was as legal as the marriage itself. She is now betrothed to a husband she's never going to get. Look at the corruption. And just think tonight about how much of a plague sin is. It is not a small thing. It starts small. Turning aside. Trying to get as far as we can away from what stings our conscience. Avoiding the means of grace where I'm going to get convicted of my sins. It just starts in those subtle ways. Before we know it, we are completely entrapped in a swirl of wickedness. And probably what's worse is we're entrapped in a swirl of wickedness of our own making and we can't even see it's of our own making. It's Tamar's fault. Are you aware of how corrupting sin can be? Even in the lives of people who profess to be Christians? Judah was a part of the covenant family. Now he had absented himself. But there is indication that Judah had not fully gone all the way with his, we'll talk about that in a minute. There's indication in the story he hadn't gone all the way with actually worshiping the other gods. He probably, something like this, he left his mom and dad, he went so he could live the free moral lifestyle of the Canaanites while secretly giving lip service to God on his own. And yet it's in his life that the corruption gets the deepest. Just like we saw this morning, two of the disciples who were closest to Jesus, James and John, were the ones who said, Jesus, give me what I want. So nearness to Jesus actually doesn't make you immune from corruption. You always have to watch against it. You always have to respond to it with, well, fleeing, as the Bible says. Flee immorality. Run from it. Cut your hand off, Jesus says. Pluck your eye out. We don't see Judah doing that. But let's look secondly at the grace that God begins to show. Now, this is the reason why, and this is the rest of the story, verses 12 and on. God begins to work out his purpose of grace in a way that shows, as John Calvin said, that the ancestry of the Christ does not stain him, but he purifies his ancestry. Same thing is true with us. The church does not stain Christ, Christ purifies the church. And we see that in this story. Uh, It's a way actually of seeing just how amazing God's grace is. Uh, Did your dad or somebody ever say, I will fight you with my hands tied behind my back and I'll still win? Did anybody ever do that with you? And you tried to wrestle them because you were a little kid and still with their hands tied behind their back, they beat you? Did you ever have that? That shows greatness, doesn't it? Right? That shows, like, superiority. And oftentimes when I read stories like this in the Bible, I think this is God saying, look, I'll get it done. My promises will happen. I'll tie my hands behind my back with corrupt folks, and I'll still get it done. Look at how he does it. He does it through a scheme that Tamar hatches. Now, I don't think we're supposed to read this um, and say, wow, what a cool thing Tamar did. How great. We should go do that. No. However, I also don't think we should just point our fingers at Tamar. After all, Tamar is desperate. And Tamar is just simply seeking what really she's been promised and owed by this family. She's trying to make rights. She's trying to right wrongs. And so we have to at least commend that. Uh, what does she do? She goes and she uh, veils herself. She intentionally makes herself seem like a, a person of ill repute along the roadside. Isn't it telling that she knows that when she is on the roadside where Judah's is going to pass, she knows what Judah's is going to do? Uh, that's probably one of the saddest things of the story. She knows exactly how her father-in-law will behave. Uh, One writer says that the sheep shearing festivals of the time were notorious for their raucous immorality. Uh, People, it's it's kind of like it was like a strawberry festival, but worse, way worse. Strawberry festival is not too bad. Think way worse. Think strawberry festival mixed with booze, crews, mixed with you know some kind of like 1960s rock party or something. You know, groupies. They would go away, all the men, only the men, to this town far away. They would bring all their sheep at once and shear them all together while they just got ripped, drunk, for days. And of course, as we find today, corruption. Ladies of this profession would often flock to those areas during the sheep shearing festival because they knew they were going to find customers. Isn't it sad that Judah is among them? She knows Judah's is going to be among them. It works. As soon as Judah sees her, he propositions. They come up with a arrangement that, that they go through with the deed. She becomes pregnant. She has an ace in the hole. What is that? She's got his ID. She's got his ID, which she got on purpose. Because she probably also knew what Judah would do next. Which is what? What gall this man has. Verse 24. After three months, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Can you imagine Judah? Oh, Tear my clothes. She's been immoral. What am I going to do? Mr. Immoral himself. What does he say? Bring her out. This, this shows you that his arrangement with her was more than just talk. It was an actual legal arrangement because he still felt like he had a legal right to say, she's my daughter-in-law and she has done immorality, therefore she deserves a punishment. It's crazy. As she comes out, the ace The ID badge is shown, and Judah is finally humiliated, possibly humbled. Do you know there's a difference between those two things, humiliation and humility? What's the difference? What Ed said? What Ed said? <laughs> that was humiliation? <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> it, made, it made the recording. So. <laughs> well, what's humiliation versus humility? Clint? Typically, humiliation is something that happens externally to you. It's happening to me. Humility is me being humble. Humil- humiliation is I don't want it, but it, I'm nevertheless, here I am, caught kind of red-handed, and here's my ID ba- D- D badge, and oof. That's what happens to Judah. Now, indications show, in in later stories, as I said, that this really did have an effect on his heart. Um, In fact, there's one indication here just in this story. He did not know her again. He treated her with dignity, respect. He didn't use her. He brought her back in, and, and he ended up raising these two boys. Far better, actually, than he had raised the other three. In fact, it's through these two boys that not only justice gets done for Tamar, which is important. Every time there's corruption, there needs to be justice. But also, every time there's corruption, if people are going to live, there needs to be grace. There needs to be redemption. And these two boys become the source of redemption for this family. Can you believe it? Perez. What a strange way to be born, by the way, just as a side note. The second twin who came out first. The younger becomes greater than the older. We've heard this before, right? This is very much like Jacob and Esau. They name him Perez. This is probably my favorite name in all the Bible. Breakthrough. Why do they name him Breakthrough? Breakthrough. He broke through, <laughs> yeah. here comes the hand, and then boop, nope, another baby. Yeah. He broke through literally at the time of birth. But also, his name kind of means something for the future. This boy represents a breakthrough in Judah's line. A line of corruption would, from Perez on, become a line of honorable nobility, In every other story that we see throughout the Bible up until the point of Solomon and then it goes south again and then of course you get the birth of Jesus Christ but up through Solomon when we read about Judah and his family we read about noble God fearing grace based men and women let's just rehearse a few of those things all right Mark go ahead absolutely Rahab is not. Uh, Rahab was. She helped out the cause of, uh, of the Absolutely. She did, but yeah. It, yeah. Indeed, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I don't mean to say by that Judah became sinless. Yeah. Right, not at all. I meant to say they became faithful to, the, to, to God's grace, they, they became a faith filled people who want to walk in God's ways. Now, you know, the Rahab story, we'll, we can get to another time. It's from Judges. Uh, but even there, Rahab is a good character, right, who has faith despite her associations with Judah, um, even though she comes from a questionable background. Judah stands out after Perez. Let's think about this. Go to Genesis 49. Some of y'all read this this week in your your Bible reading. Genesis 49, verse 8. When Jacob's going to die at the end of his life, this is what he says about Judah and his family. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the nations, of the peoples. Binding his fold to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. The most exalted blessing of all the children, right there. Go to Ruth. Joshua Judges, Ruth, Ruth. And go to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 11 talking about Ruth and Boaz. Then all the peoples who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephathra and be renowned in Bethlehem and may your house be like the house of Breakthrough, Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Who is that offspring? David. We learn about that if you'll turn to 1st Chronicles chapter 2. You'll see it again. 1st Chronicles 2. We're taking a tour here. Look at the very beginning of chapter 2. These are the sons of Israel, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Dan, Joseph, Benjamin, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, the sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. These three, Bathsheba, or the daughter of Shua the Canaanite, bore to him. Now Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death. His daughter-in-law, Tamar, also bore Perez and Zerah. Judah had five sons in all, the sons of Perez, on and on until you get to David. And then finally, look with me to Matthew chapter one. or almost finally, I got one more after that. It's really cool. Matthew 1. Chat, uh, verse two. This is or verse one, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac of Jacob, Jacob of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron of Ram, and Ram of Benadab, all the way down to David, all the way down, verse 16, to Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And then, now, really finally, Revelation chapter 5. And this is where the breakthrough is traced all the way to its end. You may know that the scene in Revelation 5 is the throne of God and all the angels are there worshiping and a scroll is presented and that scroll is a symbol of God's plan to save humanity. That's what's written on the scroll. But the scroll is sealed up. Listen to what it says. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written on, within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals in other words who can make God's plan to save the world happen who can break through and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it no one no one in the whole family no one in the whole church and I began to weep loudly John said because no one was found worthy to open the scroll look into it and one of the elders said to me weep no more Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. What do we see in Genesis 38? A terrible story, an awful story, one that is rated R or maybe worse. A story that shows us in the mirror what human corruption can look like if left unchecked. One that should make us awfully careful playing around with sin. It is is dangerous to play with. But in that story, we also see God patiently working for justice and redemption. And even through crazy schemes, God is able to make a breakthrough. That breakthrough starts small, just a son born of Tamar. But eventually that breakthrough would break out into the one who is able to fully open the scroll and finally bring about the plan of God redeeming a sinful humanity. And so when we come into the church with our spiritual eyes, we see the portraits of all the people, Old Testament and New Testament, who've gone before us. Maybe one day our portraits will be up there. And our family album as Christians includes things that most family albums don't. Because if the world is going to get the message that it's by grace and not by merit that we're saved, it must read it loud and clear. And on our family portrait wall, it is loud and clear. There is no one worthy among us to open the scrolls but one the breakthrough. And he has. And we don't defile him. He purifies us. Back to my family portrait wall when I was a kid. It was funny. I don't know why it was there. But in the middle of all our pictures, my mom had a picture of Jesus in the middle. And and not to make any statements about the second commandment and how that uh, applies. Nevertheless, there was a picture of Jesus there. Right in the middle. And... I don't know what point she was trying to make by that. We, we can ask her next Sunday. But I remembered as a kid thinking, wow, that's what lifts our family up, is that he's a part, that we're a part of his family by grace, not by blood, by grace. That's what this is about.